You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we are encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. I'm very excited about this show. I'm excited always when we get the opportunity to talk about teaching the next generation a little bit more about money. Many of you have heard me talk about my project called Your Money, which is the financial literacy magazine that my team produces in conjunction with the PwC Financial Literacy Foundation and Time for Kids. It goes to 2 million fourth, fifth, and sixth graders across the country every single month. If you've got a fourth, fifth, or sixth grader or somebody even a little younger or older at home who doesn't receive time for kids in their classroom, then they're not getting your money either. But you can get it online if you go to the Time for Kids website slash your money All of our issues are up there, and we have done some really, really fun stories in the past couple of years. So go ahead and check it out. Another way that we get kids interested, well, interested in just about anything these days, is through games, which is one of the reasons that we've got Dina Showman in the studio today. Dina is a banking veteran. She's got an amazingly rich financial history, which we will talk about. But recently, she founded and funded through Kickstarter, which is impressive in and of itself, a company called In Her Quests. And much like Birchbox, In Her Quests is a product in a box that you buy and that contains games to teach kids about money. And her very first box is focused on girls. So I'm very excited about this. Dina, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. So before we get into financial literacy and what works and what doesn't, because we all want our kids to be smarter about money than we are, let's talk a little bit about you. You are from Jordan and finance runs in your family. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, although I really hated it as a child. (laughs) So my great-grandfather founded a bank in 1930. It's called Arab Bank. Um, After actually having come to the U.S. and become a door-to-door salesman and build his own business here, he was exposed to the banking system in the U.S., and he said, you know, this is something we really need in the region. And so he left and founded a bank, uh, the first privately owned bank at that time. Um, and ever since then, the whole family has been involved in its management from my grandfather, father, and eventually me. So as a child, I really grew up exposed to money talks, banking talks. And as you may or may not imagine, it was really boring. (laughs) I used to hate it so much. I just couldn't wait for the conversations to be over. 
Um, but somehow I did get in, interested in it because I did end up uh, majoring in finance at Bentley University and spending years in the banking industry uh, after that. So, What flipped the switch for you? What took it out of the realm of these boring family conversations? And I have to say, I'm, I'm smiling as you say that because I think whatever our parents do, we either take that in and we say, God, I want to do that too, or we take that in and we say, I never want to do that. So yeah. what what flipped it for you, made it attractive after so many years of being a complete and total bore? I think it was me daring to take an economics class in high school. It was the first time they were offering it. And I just got really mesmerized by how things worked and supply and demand. Fast forward years later, I that was probably my most boring class in college. <laughs> um, but I feel like I've always loved solving mysteries and things like that. I was really into Nancy Drew as a child and like solving, you know, clue, clues and things like that. So I really got interested in that. And then also um, going to summer camp, I think when I was about 15 years old, it was the first time I had money that I had to decide what to spend on mm-hmm. versus always having a parent with me being like, you know, I'll buy that for you. No, you can't have that. No, you should spend it on this. So I remember my first everything like that. That summer was the first time I bought my first dress because they had like this really dress up, dressy party that I had to have a proper dress for. And so I remember shopping around and trying to figure out like how much is okay to spend on a dress without at that time even having like cell phones to be texting my mom be like, can I spend $200 on a dress or whatnot? So I think it's a combination of, you know, it's classroom education, but also having some real money in your hands and experience. Can we go back to Nancy Drew for just a second? (laughs) Here's my question, because Mm. I... I also struggled through economics in college. My kids who took it in high school actually loved it. I mm-hmm. think that there's I think AP economics or high school economics must mm-hmm. be a wonderful course especially if you have the right teacher. Yes. But connect the dots for me between Nancy Drew and economics cuz I don't get it. So Nancy Drew is all about like solving things and problems and mysteries, yeah. right? So it for me not just with economics also in college with accounting like getting, you know, the balance sheet to balance and things like finding all where all the numbers are coming from. So I think for me, somehow I took it like a game in some of some sorts, mm-hmm. although I didn't realize consciously at that time that I was doing it. You just explained to me why I, <laughs> why I listen incessantly to mysteries on my phone because yes. I'm a numbers person, but mm-hmm. I also I love a, a good pot boiler. I like a good puzzle, but I'd never connected it before. Yeah. Well, here we go. <laughs> really, really interesting. Yeah. So you joined your family's bank in the Middle East. What What's yes. it like being a woman in the banking business in the Middle East? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> well, there's a lot of that now, so, which is great. But at the time, I was, I believe I was 26 years old. My father was the chairman and CEO, um, and I joined at a very high position right away. Uh, at that time, the bank was going through centralization, and they had a lot of interviews to assess the personalities of potential executives. And I went through the whole process as well. So you can imagine going back as like a woman, 26 years old, who was r- soon after an EVP father. I mean, the father is the chairman and CEO. It was really, really tough. Right. You're in a position that a lot of people around you think you don't deserve. Totally. Um, and... I remember so many people trying to make me fail in different ways indirectly because they also viewed it as like, you know, she is what she is because of her father, because of her family. So 
for me, it wasn't about really proving it to other people because I also felt that myself in some ways. Mm-hmm. I don't. I didn't have the confidence in myself at that time, and I worked so hard that after I would say two and a half years, I got really, really sick. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> I got like an autoimmune attack, and um, anyway, long story short, I'm fine. But I had to take it easy and start to balance things myself. And I realized that I could actually really do it. And I had been so blessed that my the males in my family have really believed in me. And they pushed me to get the education that I did, the work experience that I did, and really provided me all these opportunities to advance and um, excel in what isn't, I did. Isn't it amazing when our bodies tell us what yes. we don't want to know? <laughs> yes. Listening to your body is so important. So how did you get from there to here? When you got sick, you must have taken a step back at the bank. When Mm -hmm. did you come to live in the United States full time? And when did you decide that you were going to start a business? Sure. So before I joined the bank uh, in Jordan, I had lived in the U.S. for eight years already. Uh, I did my undergrad in grad school and worked in between. And I spent six years at the bank, after which the family decided to step down and not be involved in any managerial um, roles. Uh, Then I didn't know what I wanted to do, because that's all I imagined I would do for the rest of my life. So I took some time. Um, I, I actually climbed to Everest Base Camp as a challenge for myself and to raise money for a cancer hospital back home. And it sort of proved to me that I could do anything because I was not fit. I was scared of heights, and I never been at an altitude of any sort. So wow. I took it as a personal challenge, although it was also for a good cause. And once I was able to do that, I just felt so so much more confidence, so strong that I could just decide to do whatever and and follow my dreams. And I've always been interested in, in education, things that empower women. And I found myself very interested in leaning more towards the creative aspects of banking in terms of branding and, you know, the giving back, like corporate social responsibility and sustainability. So I sort of wanted to marry all of that. Mm -hmm. And for some time, I've been feeling like New York's calling me back. I did live here for two and a half years before. So I figured, why not do the hardest thing ever and come and start a business in New York? <laughs> because if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, as the song goes. As the song goes. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's some people listening and they're saying, okay, she's from a banking family. Mm-hmm. There's clearly money there. Why the need to start a business with a Kickstarter campaign? Sure. Well, I actually started it a few years back. I've been bootstrapping and put a lot of my own money as an investment to grow it. Um, and... I don't think it's really smart to put all your savings into one. I don't either. Into one <laughs> basket. So it's also, you know, the Kickstarter, there were many, many reasons behind it. One says, yes, of course, a little bit of money to continue developing it is amazing, but also to reach more people, also to see, you know, if my marketing things are working and to get the word out there. So the Kickstarter can be used in many ways. So for us, it was like a pre-order campaign mm-hmm. of sorts, more than like, you know, I really need the money to continue to the next phase. So, Well, we want to hear all about In Her Quests and how it works and what is actually successful in resonating with kids and girls 
around the topic of money. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody that conversations like this come to you from Fidelity Investments because our shared mission is to get you talking about money. And we need to start talking when we're girls. We need to start talking when we're children if we're going to be comfortable talking when we are adults. That's how you gain the confidence and the inspiration that allows you to grow up and be in that financial front seat. So whether you are just entering the workforce or running a business or taking a break to raise a family or getting ready to retire or a child yourself, Fidelity has tools and resources that can help you understand where you are today and help you get where you want to go tomorrow. And you can discover more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are talking with Dina Showman, founder of In Her Quests, which is actually one word, but I want to just parse it out for people because it might be a little bit hard to spell. So it's a financial education product for kids. It comes in a box. There are three little games in there. I mean, the one that I have has play money and Mm -hmm. three games that are clearly for little kids. I mean, they help you count and evaluate different size coins Very much the kind of things I remember doing in second and third grade in the classroom where we learned lessons about money, which I know a lot of classrooms don't have time to do anymore. How did you decide what was necessary in order to teach the lessons that you wanted to teach? Sure. So when I wanted to create In Her Quests, I... I really wanted to make sure that it continues to teach things over time. So I found educational standards, which I really loved. They're from the National Financial Educators Councils. They have their own financial literacy framework and standards, which I prefer to use because it was really detailed for every age. So it goes from like the age of four around pre-K and it tells you like throughout that year in the different categories that they have what kids can learn based on their age. A lot of people think when our kids are four, like they're too young (laughs) to learn about money. My mother had a theory that no child was ever going to learn to swim before age five and then Mm -hmm. water babies came around and you got these six-month-olds floating on their back, right? So what can kids learn and when can they learn it? Sure. Uh, Well, those standards start from four years old. I consciously decided to start from the age of five. Um, I just felt like the, the, the four years old were like a little bit too, too beginner. I mean, you can still learn some concepts, but from the age of five, for example, some of our standards, they, they can learn what a want is, how adults and kids have different wants and needs, how to prioritize them. They can learn, uh, they can further learn more in the counting and like, um, and things like that. And they can start exploring jobs and what they like and their preferences. And then as you go older, like the box that I showed you this morning, the introduction to money, it's geared, it can be for five to six years old, and it's really exploring coins and coin values and bills and also using them to come up with different amounts and coming up with different games to make it fun, like which coin has a higher value than the other. For example, one of our games is called Battle of the Coins. It's really, really fun. I used to actually play it as a card game as a child, and I was like, why don't we do it with coins? I think that would be really cool. So each player has a bag of coins, and they just blindly take out a coin together. And so if they have, whoever has the highest coin wins. If they have the same coin, they continue pulling coins, and so on and so forth. So the kids really have a lot of fun doing it at the same time as they learn. We all have games in our homes, Monopoly, Mm -hmm. the game of life. How valid are these as tools to teach our own kids about money? 
So some of them are valid. I mean, you can learn a lot through them. But from the way I looked at it was like they're repeating the same thing over and over again. And a lot of them is about competition. Mm-hmm. Um, InterQuest games are built on experiential education. And so it's like you you do something and then you reflect on it and then you actually apply it to real life. So there's a lot of real life situations and things that kids can go out and do, which really resonates with them. And the fact that they also spend quality time with a parent or caregiver that makes it even better. My my biggest fear was, how can I compete with all the digital stuff that's out there? Like, kids are glued on their screens. But through our testing and stuff, I had kids play four games at a time that lasted about an hour, and the longest was an hour and 45 minutes. And she wanted to continue playing. So that really, you know, validated the whole games that I was using and the approach because I think the basics of it is two things, like, Kids love to play. They like they actually like physical stuff, but more than that, they really like spending the quality time with the parents. From my perspective, I haven't done official research on it, but just through the observations, I think that combination really brings it home. So, from what you've learned, mm-hmm. um, Inner Request is great. Not everybody's going to buy it. Mm-hmm. So, what what would you say to parents and caregivers out there who? want to use the resources that they have to help their kids become smarter about money? Sure. I mean, one of the main things is also to keep money real with kids, right? So when the kids are younger, like using physical money versus like credit cards and apps just Mm -hmm. so they can have a better understanding for what it means and involving them in different conversations at different ages. There are so many resources online, even our blog, and I'm sure you've got so many uh, posts and and resources that you've listed too where they can go to and, and how to start these conversations, right? Like one of the biggest problems is that parents don't know where to start, especially yeah. at such a young age. But there's so many ways that that you can do it without buying an actual game to do it. Last question. You yeah. launched your first box for girls. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it clearly we are a big believer in girls and women, but, but why'd you go in that direction? Why girls and not kids? Um, not all kids, you mean. Um, well, all kids can play it, but I really would love to focus on girls to get them more interested in the subject and to get gain more confidence as they grow up. I mean, all the statistics show that they start feeling less smart than boys by the age of six and seven, also when it comes to math. And there's so many studies that shows that they're not as um, encouraged to learn about money as boys. And I think financial... Financial empowerment and being financially savvy and confident is so important growing up and and comes to play even more as a woman with all the statistics you already know about. So I wanted to make sure or try to get more girls interested in it, but I didn't mean in any way to exclude boys. I've had many boy siblings of, of the girls who tested it out play it and have so much fun at the same time. So... Dina Shulman, the company is called In Her Quests. We will stay in touch and keep up with what comes next for you. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. And we'll be right back with Kelly in the mailbag. <laughs> Kelly Hultgren has joined me in the studio. I didn't I have not flashed back on my second or third, I'm pretty sure it was second grade Mrs. Christensen at Odana Elementary in Madison, Wisconsin. But <laughs> I have these these memories of her having a big bag of coins and 
us sitting down on the floor in, you know, there was an area rug, I think, in the classroom and, mm-hmm. and counting. What was your earliest memory of learning about money? Oh, that's a good question. I have two, and I don't remember which one was first. It was either playing Monopoly and remembering how much I loved earning money and negotiating with my parents or whoever I was playing with. Why am I not surprised? Not surprised, you, right? Kelly owned all the hotels, all the railroads, all the utilities. I was a little hustler at however old I was, three or four. No, probably a little older than that. That was probably first. And then second, my mom giving me one of her old checkbooks mm-hmm. and having me balance out my allowance that I was receiving. Way to go, Dottie. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, we've got a lot of questions today. We do. Let's get to them. The first one is from Emily. I'm 29 years old and completed three years of college but didn't graduate. I started a very successful business five years ago and sold it to new owners, and the new owners have taken it to new heights. I'm so happy to not be a business owner anymore and have been thinking about going back to school. Here's my financial snapshot. I make about 2000 to 2500 a month after taxes between my retail job and side hustle sitting, if we're curious. I have 55000 in student loan debt at 6% interest, 10000 on my car loan at a very high interest rate of 18%, and about 1300 in credit card debt at 24%. My credit cards have been cut up while in repayment. Due to having such low income, getting ahead of my bills is almost impossible. I'm not a spender, yet struggle to have enough money to get by. My student loan companies won't lower the monthly payments because my father's name is on the loans, and the monthly payment info is based on our combined incomes even though I'm the only one paying the loans. Going back to school would mean taking out another loan, and I don't want to add to my debt, but I don't see how I can get ahead of my debt without a high-paying job. I haven't been able to save for my future, and I am so eager to get my debt paid off so I can save, but just feel stuck. She writes, hashtag help a millennial out. Oh, Emily, Emily, Emily. I know. I know. So you've got a bunch of things going on here, um, and here is my three-step action plan for you. First, you've got an earnings problem. And your retail job, we all know retail does not pay incredibly well. We've had big fights this year to get many mass retailers to pay above minimum wage. Um, Pet sitting, pet walking, whatever you're doing with the pets, my guess is that doesn't pay incredibly well either based on your monthly income. Go get a bartending job. Go get a waitressing job. You can find a part-time job that will pay you more than this. Even if you temp and get an admin position that might pay a little bit more, that is a way toward a higher salary. It's not a way toward the career, and we're going to get to the career in just a second. But short-term, you need to make your day job pay more money. And I do think, and, and you've done this, Kelly. I mean, you, you've hostessed and— I'm a Twinkie. <laughs> Don't say that. You've hostessed and you've waitressed and you've bartended. I mean, that's where you earn the money. Absolutely. And I was going to say something similar. Emily, I think you're selling yourself short. If you started a successful business and you have that under your belt— you really don't need to worry about your resume. You need to worry about your bio. And I think using the fact that you've had this big success, that you started that in a much bigger way. And going back to retail, too, I think Hattie on our team and I were just looking at this survey recently, how for women, 
retail jobs, that's one sector where we actually out-earn men. And I think looking at some of the more competitive positions at the bigger department stores, Mm -hmm. the the more luxury department stores, where you can not only have a base, but get a commission, like, I think it sounds like you have, like, an incredible skill set that you could add on top of the retail position or build off from this retail position without just going to the default of, I need to go back to school. Yeah. I don't know what you want to do with your life. It is possible that you need a degree to get that job. And if you need that degree, then get it from community college. Transfer your credits. Go on the cheap. It's not going to matter the name of that school on your resume. Just finish it up. And that should enable you to get the leg up there Mm -hmm. at the same time where the extra income is allowing you to make headway on your debts. Finally, I don't know what your credit score is. You need to pull your personal credit score, not your father's credit score, and take a good hard look at it. I think you should be able to refinance that car loan and transfer the balance on that credit card debt so that you can make lower payments on both of those things, even if you can't move the needle on the student loan debt. Those are the three things that I would take a look at. I'm curious, can you remove someone's name off of your loan? Like, could she remove her father's name off the loan? I don't know that the lender will allow that based on her income. The Uh, lender, because because her income is so low at this point, the lender may not be willing, willing to do that because they've got the father in case she's unable to pay. Okay. Well, thank you, Emily, for writing in and let us know what you decide to do. Yeah, keep us posted, Emily. We want to hear. All right. Now we'll do one from Zulima, which I think is such a beautiful name. Beautiful name. Which bank is good to use for your bank card and to take out money when you are more than three months out of the country? Lucky you, Mm -hmm. right? Going on a nice long trip. Okay. What you're looking for is a bank that offers a debit card with a low or no foreign transaction fee. A foreign transaction fee is a percentage of the amount that you spend on a purchase that you make with your card that the credit card company or debit card company or bank is going to charge you. It's generally 1% to 3%. And it can apply to ATM withdrawals as well. There are banks that have cards that don't have foreign transaction fees. You can Google them, but they're banks like Capital One and Discover and Charles Schwab. What they aren't are banks that typically have branches. That may not matter since you're going to be abroad. You may also want a credit card, though, with no foreign transaction fee. And if I was traveling alone and out of the country, I don't even know that you're alone. If I was going to be out (laughs) of the country for three months, I would want both of those pieces of financial protection in my pocket. Yep. I recently did this for not three months, but for a week when I went to London. And I went to Bank of America, which is one of my banks, and they told me the banks that they partner with. They have international partners, and that was helpful for me. So that could be your first source. But I I do feel so much safer with a credit card. Yeah, just for emergencies. It's like a back. You don't necessarily want to use it. You definitely don't want to use it in a way where you're going to have to pay it off over a long period of time because interest rates are high. But it it is just, it's a back pocket emergency cushion. Mm-hmm. And- 
I can't believe I'm about to disclose this again, but from what I learned from Fire Festival, it's always important to have cash in or currency in the country that you are too. So it's really smart that you're thinking ahead of having the debit card with you as well. And for those of you who don't know about <sighs> Kelly's Fire Festival experience, go back and listen to our past podcast. <laughs> We've talked about it before. Let's take the last question. All right, we'll do one more from Janaya or Janaya. Please let us know how your name is pronounced for future shows because it's beautiful and I don't want to butcher it. She writes, Hi, Jean. I'm a new listener and newly married. I'm wondering if you have any advice for married women in terms of combining their banking and finances. Well, hi there. I am first offering my congratulations because newly married is very exciting. I use a yours, mine, and ours system in my own marriage, and that works very well because it provides both me and my husband with some financial autonomy. Essentially, we each have our own separate finances, and then we have both a house account and a credit card for the house, and we contribute equal percentages of our incomes into that house account. So it balances things out that way. What I do want to say, though, is that the same system doesn't work for everyone. I know couples that have kept everything separate. I know couples that have merged everything and that have found both of those systems to be really, really fine. The question is, how much autonomy do you want? How much autonomy does your spouse want? And how can you give each other the room and the freedom to have those things while simultaneously accomplishing the long-term financial goals, particularly the long-term savings goals that you set up for yourself. The biggest thing that you need to do is keep talking. And as long as you are talking about your money on a regular basis, whatever system you set up is likely going to work much better than if you're not talking at all. Great. Thank you, Jean. And thank you, everyone, for writing in. Thanks, everybody. And in this week's Thrive segment, if you are an avid listener of this podcast, and I hope that you are, you know I love highlighting gratitude practices, especially the simple ones like writing a thank you note. But it turns out, and I was surprised by this, that you may want to put away your stationery set in your ballpoint pen when you're interviewing for a job. According to an account temp survey, 91% of hiring managers said they do like to be thanked, But 62% said that sending a thank you note via email horrors was the best way to follow up, compared with just a 13% that said a handwritten note was best. And so let me just apologize to my children for forcing them to write thank you notes for every job interview by hand. Handwriting your note and sending it in the mail to a hiring manager turns out to be just too slow especially if they are looking to fill that job quickly. So there we go. I learned something important. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Dina Showman for stopping by and for a terrific interview. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We really do like to hear what you think. And I am always in there looking at those reviews and making sure that they're recent and seeing what people don't like as well as what they do. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with another great guest.